you have a piece of paper uh, that you were given when you came in. Uh, and as we, uh, as we walk through this morning in, in this teaching, um, I'd love for you to be thinking about this. Um, what is the best of the church that you have ever experienced? Um, the church at large, the church that, you, that you've known uh, growing up, what's the best that you've ever experienced as it relates to that? And what's the worst? Uh, what's the worst thing that, that you've experienced or that you've seen or heard as it relates to the church? And just kind of be pondering on those things as we walk through this morning. Um, again, my name is Micah, and uh, I am really, really glad to be back. I was gone in Chicago last week for uh, a conference that I was attending in Chicago, and uh, I made it out okay uh, through the snow and everything. Did you guys hear? There were 20-foot waves that came over the embankments of Lake Michigan up like onto Lakefront Drive. Did anybody see the footage of this stuff? It was bonkers, totally crazy. Uh, but I made it through the snowpocalypse, and I'm back. And uh, um, just a, a, a thank you, by the way. Uh, Stu was here last week. Many of you guys know Stu, and, and if you didn't, you met him last week. So uh, I, I, unfortunately, the podcast didn't work, so I didn't get to hear the actual teaching, but I read through the notes and, and heard a lot of great things. So thanks to, to Stu for filling in for me. Well done. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so, just by way of review, and then we're going to jump in this morning. We're in this series called The Story, and we are in week five. Last week was kind of four and a half, 4.5. Uh, so if you remember, we started in creation. And creation, of course, is Genesis 1 and 2. And in creation, we find a God who, who speaks and breathes life into this thing that he's created. And what we find in creation is, is what the Hebrews call shalom. Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So there's this thing that God makes, and it is, the Greeks would call it perfect, that's probably the best word we would use, but the Jews would say it's, it's shalom, it's wholeness, and, and everything that God intended is there in that, in that space, in Eden, and actually Eden means the garden of delight. Uh, so you have the garden of delight, and then uh, week two we talked about the fall, that Adam and Eve, humans, decide to choose, they make a choice to live outside of the bounds that God created for them. So within the bounds that God created, there's freedom. There's freedom to be human as we were created to be human. Uh, a little bit of a, a, a mind warp that freedom actually exists in our boundness or in, in the, to the degree that we're bound to what God intended for us, we're free. So Adam and Eve choose to live outside of that. They introduce sin into the world. And of course, we are all subject to what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 12 is, is the beginning, or if you count the flood, uh, the second moment in the story when God himself actually gets personally involved with what's going on, which is very different than other uh, accounts of how God works in their time, and, and, and especially even in ours, that God would... would get himself personally and specifically emotionally and physically involved in this thing that he's created. And we find that in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And here's what I want you to get from this. What you have in Genesis chapter 12 is the beginning of salvation history. You have the beginning of God's redemptive move in history, sort of starting, the clock starts at Genesis chapter 12, and you have this thing that starts happening in and through the scriptures, and I would want to submit to you this morning, it's redemptive history and salvation history. So that starts at Genesis 12 with Israel. Of course, we find at the end of, of the Old Testament... This song speaks about it. Uh, Israel is called an adulteress, uh, a, a woman who's not been faithful to her bride. 
Uh, and, and what God intended for Israel did not happen in and through them. And so we get Jesus, which we talked about two weeks ago. And, of course, if you're thinking about it in story terms, Jesus is the climax of, of the story. This is the pinnacle of salvation history. This is God's redemptive history coming to its moment where everything will change. It's kind of like a watershed, right? Loveland Pass in Colorado, where we used to go to school. If you're on one side, the water goes this way to the Mississippi, and if you're on the other side, it goes that way to the Pacific. <laughs> I wasn't a history or geography guy. Um, is it the Pacific? Is that where California is? Thank you. Okay, so that way to the Pacific, that way to the Mississippi, and, and then out through the Gulf of Mexico. It's a watershed moment. Everything changes. Everything hinges on this point in history. It's the pinnacle of salvation history. This week, we're going to talk about the church, and, and we've been talking about this whole thing in a very Jewish context, and I'm going to kind of veer a little bit from that this morning, but I want to start just by saying that we have to understand the church in this light if I think we're going to get what the church is really about in the world. If, if Israel was the beginning of salvation history and Jesus was the climax, the pinnacle, the watershed moment, the church is the continuation of salvation history in the world. The church, this thing called the church, is the continuation of redemptive history in the world. It's the, it's the continuation of what God started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So there's this paradoxical moment this paradoxical idea, that in one sense, the church, big capital C church, is massive, it's global, it has, it has the entire world and solar system and everything God created in its you know, crosshairs. And also, in this moment right now, awaken this church, you, this particular little group of people in Lilydale, Minnesota. This is the eminent or the imminent, depending on how you want to say it, expression of God's redemptive history continuing on in the world. That's what, you're, that's what you've walked into this morning. So when you think about the church, we have all kinds of things going on in our heads, right? Uh, good experiences, bad experiences, all sorts of places that we've been and things that we've experienced and heard. But I need you to understand as we jump into this that that's what we're walking into. That's what's happening right here. The tick-tock of God's redemptive history in the world is working itself out in and through you and me and the church at large. This is big. This is huge. This is absolutely critical. And it's grace that God would invite us to be a part of this. So here's what I want to do this morning. Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there, please. Now, most people would say... Uh, that have been, been around a church before. If you're going to talk about the church, of course you're going to go to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching the breaking of bread, fellowship, and, and no, every, they gave to everybody who had need, and everybody that got their needs met, and everything was great, right? That's probably where one would think I'm going. But, you all know me well enough to know that's not where I'm going. I think there's something, uh, not that that's a bad passage. I love that passage. I think it's beautiful. It's a great picture of what the church was and should be and, and sometimes is. But I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk about a little guy, a little known prophet uh, called Joel. Because Peter, in, in, in the beginning of chapter 2 of the book of Acts, quotes a guy named Joel. And he says some things. Hey, how you doing, Joel? Uh, that's Joel, my friend. He plays the keyboards. I just saw you up there. Sorry, I didn't, that's not in the script. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 
14. And actually, if you would, stand with me as we read God's word, if you can. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, let me explain this to you, listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, because there was some crazy stuff going on, and people were like, I think they've been drinking a little bit. But Peter, Peter, Peter gets right in there and he says, as you suppose, first and foremost, it's only nine in the morning, and who drinks at nine in the morning? Not a lot of people. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below. Pray with me if you would. God, we believe uh, something particular about your... Uh, this word, these, these words in this book called the Bible, that uh, they reveal to us the God who is behind creation, the God who is behind the resurrection, the God who is behind uh, healing and uh, freedom for people who are in slavery, the God who uh, is love. We believe that this book taps us into you, God. And so we want uh, more than anything for you to speak to us. Uh, I pray that you would... Uh, gently and uh, with love and care, pry open the the doors of our heart uh, and and let your light shine into us, God. We pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat if you would. Hey, kids, if you're here this morning, if you're in the room, uh, if if, if you're drawing or you got a little notepad or anything and you want to draw some things that you you understand about the church, uh, so if it's a person or a picture or a word or a building or something, that would be awesome, okay? So that can be, uh, as you as you listen or tune me out, you can do that. A couple of things that I want to highlight from Acts chapter 2 that we just read. Um, First and foremost, these guys weren't drunk. Um, There was a lot going on, right? If you remember, uh, Stu talked about Luke and Acts go together. They're two volumes of the same book. And at the end of that chapter, uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, we have the resurrection of Jesus. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, you have Jesus walking around with these people for 40 days, Luke tells us. If you weren't here last week, 40 has huge implications. In the, in the, in the Torah and in the scriptures, 40 oftentimes talks about and refers to something that's dying and something that's being born. Uh, if you know anything about women who are pregnant, uh, most people would say, how long is a pregnancy? It's nine months. Actually, it's not nine months. And I'm not going to say the word Stu said last week, um, but uh, it, it's 40 weeks uh, from a particular moment in a woman's life um, that guys don't experience. You all with me? Okay, great. So it's 40 weeks from that time until the time the baby is born. It's very interesting, I find it very interesting that actually the human birth experience is 40 weeks and that that has some sort of symbolic meaning in the scriptures. I don't think it's an accident. So Luke ends, Acts begins, Jesus is hanging around for 40 days. All of a sudden, uh, he, he leaves, he ascends, and he says, hang on, wait for it, wait for it, don't, we'll just wait for it. Something's coming, and when it comes, you will be given power from on high. And of course, the Holy Spirit comes, and there's all sorts of crazy things happening, wind blowing and fire coming down, and the people looking on are thinking to themselves, this is craziness. These people have to be drinking, because this kind of thing doesn't happen every Tuesday, or whatever day it was, right? And Peter says, no, actually, they're not drinking. 
And I want to highlight a couple of things that I think are critical as we understand what the church is and should be in the world. The first is this. Peter says, and he quotes Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. What I want to say first and foremost is if we're going to know anything about the church, we have to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is empowered by something other than itself to do what it's called to do. You follow me? The church of Jesus is empowered by something outside of itself to do what it's been called to do. We've been called to do something particular in the world, to participate in God's redemptive history. And I have, to, I have to underscore, before we go anywhere else, that this is impossible for us to do without God's Spirit. We cannot do it on our own, and it's God working in and through us that anything is accomplished and anything happens. Um, here's, let's just walk through this, this text here. What feast are these people celebrating in Acts chapter 2? Does anybody remember what this is called? When the Spirit comes down? Pentecost, okay? These people are celebrating a feast for the Jewish folks, which actually brilliantly ties into exactly what happens in this moment. Uh, Turn back to Exodus chapter 19, if you will. Exodus 19, this is the story, uh, rightly put, uh, the title of the book, of the Exodus. Uh, The Jews have come out of Egypt, and they've wandered around for a little while. They've gone through the Red Sea, and now they're at Mount Sinai. And here's what happens in Exodus 19, starting in verse 16 says this. On the morning of the third day, there was a thunder and a lightning with a loud, a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. It was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it, uh, descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Skip down to verse, uh, we'll do 20 and then 25. The Lord descended on to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And then verse 25, Moses comes down to the people and he told them, and what follows is the Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Heston, whoa, 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 whoa. he comes down the mountain and he gives the people the Ten Commandments. Why is this important in a story about Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost? I will tell you why. Or I will offer a thought, and you can determine whether or not you think it's worth listening to. Sinai and and the giving of Torah for the Jewish people was actually interpreted as grace given by God. Now that's kind of backwards, right? Because we think about the Torah and the Old Testament and all these lists of laws, and we're like, seriously, how is that grace? That sounds like a prison. It sounds like a ball and chain. sounds like some sort of, somebody locks you up and says, you can't do this and you can't do that. They didn't think of it that way. And here's why. God said, I will bless you, Abram, to do something and be something for the world. So God says, I'm going to choose you, and you're going to do something in the world. You're going to be a certain kind of people in the world. Where did we start this whole thing about the church? Empowered by the Spirit, right? We can't do this without God's Spirit. If you're Abram in the beginning, and God asks you to do something, he asks you to, to, to be a certain kind of people in the world... I mean, we know the stories about Abraham, right? And about Noah and about other, other people along the way. I mean, people who, who drank too much, who uh, uh, got tricked by their own family to, uh, to sleep with them, uh, people that lied. These are messed up folks. So why is it considered grace that God would give Torah? Because Torah empowers 
the Jewish people to do what they've been called to do. He gives them the means, get this, God in Torah at Sinai gives them the means by which they can be the people that God asked them to be. So from a Jewish perspective, Torah is actually life. It's grace given by God to say, here's who I want you to be and here's how I'm asking you to do it. Here's, very specifically, here's what you should do. Here's the empowerment to do it. And they, they often talked about Torah as spirit of God. So they leave Egypt, this narrow place, and they experience Passover as they're leaving Egypt. And then they come to Sinai where they're given Torah... And the festival schedules that they celebrate tell them that between Passover and Pentecost is how many days? Forty. Why? Because something is dying. Something is being born. Out of death and this narrow place of Egypt, something is born and birthed. And God gives the people the empowerment to be the people he's called them to be at Sinai. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Back to our story, Acts 2, you have how many days between resurrection and Pentecost, according to Luke in Acts chapter 1? 40. When the Spirit of God shows up, does it sound like anything you've heard before? Smoke, wind, loud noises. 40 days between resurrection and Pentecost. Smoke, loud noises. Are you tracking? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? It is a mirror. It's a fractal, right? That's what Stu talked about last week. It's, a fra- it's the same pattern and it just zoomed out. Because originally it was for the Jewish people and they would then do this for the, for the world. Now it's through Jesus for the world. It's a fractal. It's amazing. It's the same story. God calls this group to be a people. He empowers them to do so. He births something. This is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2. And it is, it is critical that we get this. Uh, you, you may hear me talk a lot about our role. As we talk about church and as we talk about Awaken, you may hear me say things like, uh, talk about our role, like our personal role, individual roles in this, and that we get to partner with God to do something and be something in the world. And while that is true, and I want to emphasize that, because I think the church oftentimes hasn't emphasized that, we have to remember that we cannot do it on our own, that it's God's Spirit empowering the church to do and be something in the world. So if anything is going to happen in and through Awaken, if, any, if God is going to do anything through this group of people, I think there's two things that are necessary. Number one is you. You and your courage, you and your chutzpah, you and your desire to be a part of this. But over and above that, and more importantly, is the Spirit of God empowering the church to do and be something in and for the world. That's how this thing works. That's when stuff gets done. That's when the world changes. What happens in the book of Acts when the Spirit of God shows up? If you just follow it, and even just look at headings in your... I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple I found. The Spirit of God comes and empowers the people. Here's what happens. Peter heals a cripple in, in chapter 3. Philip baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> right? A eunuch. Okay? Okay? Um, who's from Ethiopia. Who, who doesn't know anything about these Hebrew people. 
Philip tells him about Jesus and baptizes him. Paul sees Jesus on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. Peter heals a, 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 a person named Aeneas who's a paralyzed person. And Tabitha is raised from the dead in chapter 9. Cornelius, the Roman centurion, sees a vision about the work of the Spirit which is now for the entire world. What happens when the Spirit of God empowers His people is the world changes. What happens when the Spirit of God does what it does through the church is that all of the rules are changed. And there is a new reality that is lived out and experienced that happened in Jesus and resurrection that actually starts to take on flesh and blood. That's what happens when the Spirit of God empowers the church. So Peter says, quoting Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on you. By the way, does anybody know the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5? Remember the story? They have a plot of land and they gather all the people of the church around and they sell their plot of land, but they don't tell the apostles what actually they sold it for and they keep some of it for themselves. And then they're both struck dead. Does anyone else find that story a little alarming? Right? You, you read that and you're kind of like, whoa, man, it's just a little real estate transaction. Seriously, is it that bad? On a story perspective, the answer is absolutely yes, it's that bad. Why? Because what's introduced is the catalyst for everything. What's introduced is the Spirit of God, and what they do is betray and stand over and against the Spirit of God at work in their midst, and they're struck dead. Because to, to do this without the Spirit of God empowering us, it's dead. It is absolutely dead. Did Ananias and Sapphira actually die? I think they probably did. But even on a story level, the point is, to do this without the Spirit of God, it's death. Peter goes on quoting Joel and he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. And I'm going to do a very, very cursory uh, and I'm not going to do this justice, but it's a whole other topic that we're going to get to at some point in the future, so you're just going to have to stick with me. But here's what I want to say, and it's important for us to know. The Spirit of God, when it empowers the church, empowers all of anyone who is in Christ, irregardless. Is it irregardless or is it regardless? Thank you. Regardless of gender, class, race, or any other category that you might want to put in there. When the Spirit of God empowers the church, it does it regardless of gender, class, race, or any other category. What I'm saying to you is this, that when the Spirit of God gifts the church to do and be something in the world, while we have some texts that are difficult to understand and interpret in Corinthians and Timothy and a couple other places, I think Ephesians, I think that the narrative trajectory or the redemptive trajectory of what's going on and what the cross accomplishes actually doesn't even do justice to what Paul says to do to specific churches in the ancient Near East. What I'm saying is this. At Awaken, we believe that the gifts of God are given to the church for the, be- for, for the betterment, for the, uh, for the building up of, for the use of the kingdom of God regardless of gender which means we would have a woman preach and teach. Because if a woman is gifted to preach and teach, she should preach and teach. We would have a woman elder and a woman deacon or a woman overseer. Because if a woman has a gift of wisdom and has a gift to discern and, and, and is mature in her faith, she should elder and govern and, and, and serve. 
I want to point out just a couple really small uh, uh, instances uh, why, why we believe this, and we'll flesh this out later. So if you're freaking out right now, stick with us, okay? Stick with us. Community, family is about doing this together. We don't just leave when we hear something we don't like, okay? So stick with us. Second Kings chapter 22, you have a lady named Huldah. And Huldah is a woman, and she is a prophetess. She is a woman that when the book of the law is found, they bring it to Huldah, and they say, basically, what should we do? And Huldah speaks on behalf of God to the people. Which is problematic for Paul in the New Testament, right? You have a woman speaking on behalf of Israel to the people, on behalf of God to the people of Israel. Romans chapter 16 introduces us to two characters. One of them is named Phoebe and one of them is named Junius. Phoebe in chapter 16, actually, why don't you just turn there, Romans 16, says this. Paul says, uh, verse 16, verse 1. I'm sorry, I'm in Corinthians. I'm like, that's not the right one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. The word there is diakonos, which is the same word for deacon that's used later in Timothy. So you have a woman who's a deacon in the church. Then you have Junius later in verse 7. It says, greet Andronicus and Junius. And some people argue that Junius isn't a, 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 a woman's name. Rubbish. Foolishness. Junius is a woman, and it says, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. What do the apostles do? They teach, they preach, they share, they, they, they're, they're ambassadors on behalf of God to the world and to the church and to the people around them. A woman, apostle. Suffice it to say, for our time this morning, I want you to get this, that when the Spirit of God empowers the church, it does regardless of gender. So if you have a gift that's been given to you, you should be exercising it. And if you're not then I would ask the question, why? And what are you burying it for? Briefly. To the ladies in the room who have felt, maybe, that they have something that God has gifted them with, who have ever felt belittled or squashed or that your voice shouldn't be heard or, or I'm just really sorry. And I recognize I say that with brothers and sisters who are trying to be as faithful as they can to the text and to interpret it, to interpret the God who is revealed in the text and his desires for the church. I recognize this is not an easy issue and it's not a simple one and there have been too many divisions over it for, that break my heart. So I, I recognize and I, and I want to just say that we can have fellowship as people who are Christians who follow Jesus and disagree on this particular issue. This church, Awaken, is a church that, that says and interprets the scriptures in a, in a particular way that we can talk about in much more depth later. But that says that the Spirit of God gifts the church. Period. 
And that what we find in the New Testament, in Timothy and Ephesians and in Corinthians, I would argue is, is much more a, a commentary on culture in a particular time and place for which the, the, what's best for the gospel is held up and then Paul speaks. To which we should also say, what's best for the gospel in our context and what is the cro- what's the trajectory of the cross allow for and, and do and then make that happen. Last, I want to say this, and maybe even most, maybe, maybe most importantly, or the one I feel the most, Acts 2, Paul, Peter, excuse me, quoting Joel, says, I will, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I would argue, I would submit to you this morning, that at the core of what it means to be a part of the church is to be a part of a group of people who dream dreams and see visions. And later on it says in that verse, who, who, who will have prophecies. Now, I'm not going to bring out any snakes. I'm not going to do anything crazy. Uh, no, I don't think anyone will be slain in the spirit today, so please don't think that that's the direction I'm going or that's what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is this. We live in a world that is broken. And we had a brother who was brave enough to share his own journey amidst of, in the middle of that brokenness. And I'm sure that there are people across this place and in these seats who could, who could equally share their stories of brokenness for whatever reason. You and I live in a world that is not as it should be. But good news, my friends, when Jesus comes up from the grave, he says there's a new day that has dawned, there is a new sun that is rising, and there is a new world that is possible. There is a new humanity that I am calling out. Anyone who is in me, Paul says, anyone who is in Christ is a part of this new humanity. What does that mean? May I submit to you this morning that it means that we become a group of people who dream dreams, who see who see what's really hard to see in our world. That resurrection says that death does not win. That brokenness does not win out in the end. That despair is not the only option. Peter says that this will be a group of the first, ex- the first explanation of what the church is. This is it right here. This is the first, like, who are these group, of, who is this group of people and what are they about? Peter quotes Joel and he says, you will dream dreams and have visions and prophesy. About what? About a new day that's possible because of Jesus. So the church is a group of people who stand on street corners, not with bullhorns saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, because I don't think that's helpful, but who stand on the street corners, metaphorically speaking, and say, there is a new day. We can see it. We have seen it. We've tasted it. We believe it. It's changed our lives. We've seen a vision of a recreated world where God and his people are one, where God and his creation are one. This is a group of people who say to mothers and fathers, the mistakes that you've made with your kids do not and did not write your future. Because forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration win in the end, not despair and brokenness and mistakes. It's a group of people 
who say to sons and daughters, while you may have wandered miles and miles and miles and miles and miles from home and have squandered everything that was dear to your heart and you've said all kinds of things that you regret saying and you wish you could take back, the church says that forgiveness and restoration and a new day is possible. It's a group of people who say to addicts and people in bondage that this way of life, being addicted to something that's ravishing your body and your mind and your soul, does not have to win in the end. That there is new possibility. That there's another way to do this. And in and through Jesus, it's possible. It's a group of people who say to single moms that you deserve the world. And your kids don't deserve to grow up without it. Without Adults of character and men of character. We live in a world that is void of fathers for little boys growing up. That's, it should not be that way. And the church is a group of people who say it shouldn't be that way and so it won't be that way. Let me close with this. Peter quotes Joel and says a few things about the church that it's empowered by God's Spirit. I have a terrible short-term memory. (laughs) That the Spirit's given to all people. And that it's a group of people who see the future. That's possible in resurrection. Uh, There's a guy that I spoke with a while ago. And uh, he came to Awaken for the first time few months ago, and uh, this particular person has a very vivid prayer life, a very vivid, um, sees visions, and hears God speak. And I've been praying for people like this to be a part of Awaken since we began. And he came, uh, I heard through a friend, through another person, but eventually got the story from him, and he said, when I came to Awaken for the first time, I saw... I saw God breathing life into the hearts of the people at Awaken. And I got this sense that what is happening here is good. I don't know about you, but I have staked my vocation, my reputation, possibly my life on this thing called the church. And I want so badly for what this becomes to be used by God to advance his kingdom. That's what Awaken is about. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're dreaming for. And I want to invite you as a group of people to step into that. Despite what's happened in the past, despite the experiences you've had previously, to step into what God always dreamt of and hoped for when he talked about and spoke of the church. I'm going to ask the band to come and we're going to Uh, Just close with an exercise. As they do, uh, if you would, Ben's just going to play quietly for a moment, and uh, you have a piece of paper in your hands, uh, a three-by-five card, and uh, there should be some pens around. If you would, maybe just take a moment in the quietness of of this space and uh, write down, if something comes to you, uh, uh, the worst experience you've had with church. Um, Because something this beautiful and this powerful has the potential for great good or great harm. 
And we want to be honest about the fact that we haven't lived up to what God's asked us to do and be all the time. There are moments in our history, there are moments in our story as the church of Jesus Christ that are just abhorrent. And we get miniature versions of that. Some of us have walked those roads. Write those down. Flip side, what's the best that you have ever seen the church be? What does it look like? What happened? And as Ben plays, uh, contemplate those things, write those down. And then we're going to sing a song as we close that's called Be the Church. And I would like to invite you into this song. uh, And I want to invite you into it as a way of affirming, as a way of saying yes. As a way of saying, God, this is who, as as a prayer. as a a prayer to say, God, this is what we want to be about. This is what we want to be a part of. We want to be the kind of church that does these things. If you don't know the song, just listen. If you know it, belt it out. And as we sing that song, I want to just invite you to come and lay those things here because we'll finish where we started. None of this is possible without the Spirit of God empowering the church to do and be what he's called us to be. And so we're just going to leave them here at, at this altar, so to speak this makeshift altar. So think, write, pray, contemplate, uh, and in just a moment, uh, Ben will lead in and be the church and we'll sing that together. And I'd, I'd invite you to stand as we do that. And if you want to come and lay things down, kids, if you have pictures, uh, bring those as well. So 